The following program is brought to you in living color. I won a night of wine tasting from work. That sounds fun. Mm -hmm. well, I do enjoy the complexity of an aged Pinot Noir. I'm sure that would pair nicely with your five nuggets of chicken. Well, it sounds like a nice night. We should go. Wine again? Yeah, no thank you. I like my grapes the old-fashioned way, in a juice box. It's The Wine Crush, the show that's all about the grape and the lifestyle it creates. Now, here's your host, Laura Lawson. Welcome to The Wine Crush. I'm Laura Lawson, your favorite Chardonnay-guzzling diva, and you are listening to the show that's all about the grape and all its glory, all the vine, all the time, everything you ever wanted to know about wine and were afraid to ask. That's what we are here for. We are your media resource for everything about our happy and jovial little grape. Is there something wrong in there? <laughs> what, what, Some little what? problem with the uh, headphones? What, what, what gives you that idea? Because you're in there flopping around like a chicken. Well, it is. After that big cup of oh. cheese puffs you had for lunch. <laughs> well, why, why do we always start the show out like this? You know, I actually got mail about last week's show. Really? Yes. I got another letter, too, but I'll tell you about it later. Okay, great. Yeah. You know, pe people calling in. One, either saying that, hey, this is supposed to be a wine show. Why do you get off tangents? Yeah, my or, fault. Or two, people telling me to be nicer to you. Really? Yes. Well, you know, my mother said the same thing. Who is that woman and why is she so mean to you, she said to Kent. Oh, I, th I, I thought she was talking about your <laughs> wife. My mistake. All right, you are uh. listening to The Wine Crush. We are having fun today. Hey, we got a great guest. We have Miss Bianca Bosker. She is the author of Cork Dork. And I can't decide whether I think we ought to have her locked up or she's my hero. Really? Uh, she she was an editor for the Huffington Post. She had a great job and decided that she was so passionate, excited about wine, she quit her job. Spent a year and a half working to get her certified sommelier and wrote a book about it called Court Dork. So she is hmm. joining us today to go through and talk about uh, her experiences. Well, now, is Court and about Dork the referring book. to her or is it the, well, the why, title? Or do why, we know? It's the title of the book. Why don't we wait till we get the guest on and well, we'll explore ask. it then? Yeah, we'll ask. Yes, because everyone just gets so excited. I love it when you're like this. It, I, I, this I week want to know all about always... Court Dork. I like the title. Yes. Well, they... Court Dork. It. It describes me. <laughs> no, actually, it's been used to describe people like me. It is a catch-all phrase. Don't, you you certainly have heard the term court dork before, right? No, I have not. Oh, wow. We Are have... you going to be mean to me again? Uh, probably, yes. Okay. I'll, I, I may mock you toward the end. Right now, I'm not. Right mm. now, I'll just uh, edify what is, and educate. What does this mean? Uh, court dork, it's kind of a dated term. Uh, certainly was applicable back in the 80s and back in the 90s. But it was people who learned a lot about wine and who were so passionate enthusiastic. This is before the internet really became full force. This is when you actually had to read in books. And if you sat down and you had a conversation and the person you were talking to had their nose in the glass. Mm. Okay, you, when we, some of our opens, you use a scene from Sideways. Right, yeah. And it's Miles Get talking, your nose in the glass. Yeah. You, yes. Miles is a court dork. Ah. He is the one trying to make sure you have that full enamored experience. So uh, court dork is not necessarily a kind term. Uh, if we're using it about ourselves, it's fine. I am a closet court dork. I'll admit it. I try and make wine simple. I want you drinking out of mason jars and whatever you want to and putting whatever you want to in your glass. But when push comes to shove in my own household, yes, I'm a court dork. Yeah. So. Well, okay. Now I know. I think probably court dork phrase came out about the same time the word preppy did. Oh, that old? Yes. Well, no wonder you remember. Oh, that, excuse me. Bless There's me being heart. mean. There's me. There what we a... go. Oh. But we did get a lot of responses from last week's show. So let me clear something up. Uh, because of Kent, we got off on the tangent about soap wine. Always invigorating to get off on yeah. those wild tangents. We found out there was no such thing. Yeah, but see, here's the great thing. It, it spawned a number of comments and phone calls and uh, issues on Facebook. No, there is no such thing as soap wine. There's not. You can look it up all you want to. In fact, I will take it a step further that uh, even today when you look at soap making, lye is involved. It will kill you. So just oh. keep that in the back of your head that we're generally speaking, well, besides antifreeze, we're not going to put anything in wine that's going to kill you. Generally. 
but we're not supposed to. How about that? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been articles about arsenic. There's been articles about antifreeze, uh, glyethyl alcohol, but no, uh, no soap, wine. Now, for those of you who reached out to me and wrote into me about certain wines tasting soapy, let, let's investigate that a little bit. Kent brought up a great point in the fact that, yes, glassware matters. And I'll flat out tell you right now that when we start looking at restaurants, um, obviously they have standards they have to adhere to uh, to get their health inspection, to be able to go through and be open for restaurants. And part of that, of course, is going to be making sure that glassware uh, dishes, plates, silverware are all clean. Uh, One of the ways that they do that is if you've ever seen the back of a kitchen, there are massive, massive dishwashers, and the dishwashers take whole racks. And obviously, if you're in a busy restaurant, they don't have just shelves and shelves and shelves of plates and napkins and glassware. They have to, on a Friday and Saturday night, wash dishes to be able to serve you again. So because of that, two factors, three factors that come into play. One, the dishwashers are very, very hot. Number two, they're also very, very chemicaled. So you can indeed be in a restaurant and you'd like to think that everyone has time to polish their glasses and that everything's been rinsed off. But if you get in the heat of the moment and all of a sudden you're getting out and you're getting your glass and the server's out of glassware and they're just grabbing it and going, yes, you're going to get some soap in your wine. You're going to get a bleach taste in your wine. You're going to get something chemical in that wine glass that you probably don't want. So let me say this. Outside of two wines that come to mind that I will not name, that you will probably never encounter, I have never tasted a wine that is actually soapy. So if you are out dining at a bar, at a restaurant, and you take a big gulp of your Chardonnay, Pinot Grigio, Moscato, Rosé, Pinot Noir, whatever adjective, you, whatever varietal you want to put in there, and you taste soap or bleach, send it back. It's not supposed to taste like that. I I did wound up really feeling guilty and feeling bad for a lot of my listeners who said that, well, they always get a soapy taste on their wine. They go to their favorite restaurant and they have their Chardonnay and they just assumed it was supposed to taste a little bit soapy. No, it's not. That, That is glassware. So send your wine back. Ask the server to polish the glass. Ask the server for a different glass. Ask the server to rinse your glass. I don't know, but for my poor listener, you didn't name yourself, who said that every Friday night you go out and have a glass of Chardonnay and you've gotten where you kind of like the soapy taste. That's a problem. Please don't do that anymore mm-hmm. and talk to your restaurant. But no, uh, unfortunately, it happens more than we would like. Also, uh, in my own house, when my jet dry runs out, and I don't have that beautiful cascade sheeting action to come down off my glassware, mm-hmm. and they sit there. Yes, soap residue can get in there. So just be cognizant of it. And if you're drinking something that tastes like a soap bubble, or in Kent's case, it tastes his mouth tastes like it did when he was a kid and his mother grabbed him and shoved that bar of ivory down his throat. Lux was my favorite. There you go. You're doing it wrong. They're doing it wrong. And no, your wine shouldn't taste soapy. There. And it's not just your wine, any any beverage, your your ice water, your tea. Come to think of it, now that I look back in the history of eating out, many times on on on, on many occasions, I tasted the residue of uh, a freshly washed glass it's ev- out of the dishwasher. It, it is inevitable. And uh, here's the thing is more often than not, you're not going to taste soap, to be honest with you. You're going to get a bleachy taste. I mean, restaurants don't use straight bleach to clean things. If you think about it from a dining point of view and a personal point of view, you want them using bleach on whoever ate on ate or drank out of what's before you, but there is a fine line. Think about it like a swimming pool. Think about yeah. it like the difference. You don't want to go swimming in a pool that's not chlorinated, chemically treated. Yeah. You don't. On the same token, you don't want to get in one that's overchlorinated. So pretend you're Goldilocks and find the bed that's just right when it comes to chemicals and soaps in your glassware and in your wine. Isn't that amazing how one small detraction in last week's program produced this intellectual discussion about well, see, soap residue in wine glasses? Well, you see, as long as we're using the word intellectual, you use the correct word. You meant to say distraction. No. Yeah, well, you did. What did I say? Detraction. Oh. Yes, it was a detraction. You detracted from my whole show like you usually do. Yes, like I'm doing now. Yes. So... Obviously, we've got a great guest today, but there's a couple interesting things happening out in the world. I realize this is not necessarily totally wine-centric, 
But I think most of you out there, if you're following alcohol, if you follow news, if you if you follow business at all, uh, obviously the craft beer movement has been something that none of us can can avoid and ignore. And I hate I don't even want to call it a movement. It's been a tidal wave. Well, of course, the big guys aren't going to sit back forever. And recently, InBev, which is Budweiser, bought a craft brewery called Wicked Weed. Wicked Weed gained, I mean, national fame. People love, love this beer. They fight for this beer. It's it's won all the awards throughout the country. You go to national festivals, whether you're going out to the Denver Festival, whether you're going to local festivals, Wicked Weed wins between the name, the marketing, everything that they do. Well, obviously, they're doing something right because InBev Budweiser bought them. Now, here's the thing. The day it was announced that Budweiser bought Wicked Weed, the world ended, apparently, because haters came out of the woodwork and said, you're not a craft beer anymore. You're not a craft brewer. I'll never touch your beer again. Your beer is crap. This is absolutely ridiculous. You don't deserve to be on the planet. You don't deserve to call yourself a craft beer. I don't understand that. Help me. What? Help my listeners. Listeners, I need you to help me understand this. Because nothing changed at this brewery. The space didn't change. The location didn't change. The hops, the water sourcing, the brewers. Literally what was in the vats didn't change. What was sitting in the warehouse didn't change. But the moment that went public, that it was owned by Budweiser, the world revolted. And I, I, I think to me, that is one of the most asinine things I have encountered in 2017. Uh, you go from hero to zero overnight because a big guy purchased you. Now, I can certainly understand there are people out there that don't like Budweiser, that don't drink Budweiser or any of their products. But why, if you have consumed nothing but this beer in your lifetime and it gets bought by somebody else, what if it had been bought by Kent? What if Kent Bernhardt had come in there and bought it? Would it be okay then? I don't really understand this. And this is how it applies to the world of wine. We've discussed it. We've talked about it. All the consolidations, all the big companies that are buying these smaller wineries. I don't hear that outcry on the white side. Oh, Constellation owns this. Gallo owns this. I'll never drink it again. So help me explain the logic. The taste, the flavor, the moment, the profile, the coolness, the hit factor, nothing changed. But all of a sudden, the beer is not worthy of your attention anymore. Help me explain it. 877-4-CRUSH-1. Email me, Laura Lawson at winecrush.com. We're going to take a break right here. When we get back, we will certainly go into a little more about what's going on in your wine community. And we're going to take a look at our place in things. For pictures, videos, show recaps, and more, become a fan of Wine Crush Radio Group on Facebook. Do you owe back taxes to the IRS? Newsflash, the president has changed the tax laws. And now, you may be able to pay the IRS less. If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, the tax doctor can help you pay the IRS as little as possible allowed by law. There are new tax laws for business owners, the self-employed, even W-2 workers. If you have a back tax problem or a few years of unfilled returns, new help to save you money is now here. Call right now to see how the new tax Tax laws can help you. Plus, right now, we'll waive the consultation fee and give you a free tax savings report. Attention business owners, the self-employed, and W-2 workers. Make this free call to the tax doctor now and learn how to take advantage of the new tax laws that may help you pay the IRS less. 800-281-7048. 800-281-7048. That's 800-281-7048. Do you have an idea for an invention or new product? Do you think companies would be interested in your idea? Do you want to try to get a patent? Then call InventHelp now. InventHelp keeps your idea confidential and explains every step of the invention process. We create professional materials representing your idea and submit it to companies who are looking for new ideas. We have more than 9,000 companies who have agreed to review ideas in confidence. If a company shows interest in manufacturing your invention, we can negotiate on your behalf. We have helped over 10,000 clients receive patents 
patents. We also offer services including 3D modeling and animation demonstrating your idea, prototyping services, and we use state-of-the-art technology to show InventHelp client ideas to additional companies. Join the thousands of people just like you who chose InventHelp to pursue their idea. We are experienced. We are working for you. We are InventHelp. Call us for free information at 1-800-542-6751. This is the news. This morning, we are saluting the 2.2 million women who have joined in the war effort. They now make up 37% of the workforce, changing their role forever. The prestigious Harvard Medical School is breaking ground today, opening its doors to new female applicants. Today, little girls all over the world look to the sky, where the first woman is now in space. Military stereotypes are challenged today with the trailblazing promotion of a U.S. female officer to four-star general. It was just announced that the vast majority of last year's doctorate degrees were earned by women. We've come so far, but our news is changing for the worse. More women die from heart disease and stroke than men, even though it can be prevented. Make a change at GoRedForWomen.org today. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the American Heart Association's Go Red for Women. Ranger Station, Ranger speaking. Yeah, hi. I'd like to report a bear sighting. Location? Uh, in the woods, just outside of town. Oh, not surprising you've got your home. Bears have theirs. Yeah, but see, this wasn't just any bear. This bear was wearing jeans and a hat, as in a smoky bear. Jeans and a hat, that's definitely smoky. What exactly did he have to say? Well, we were about to head home, you know, after having a bonfire. Oh, I can guess where this is going. Right, right. See, Smokey told me the fire wasn't actually out. He said if it's too hot to touch, it's too hot to leave. That's true. Did you know that 9 out of 10 wild fires are caused by humans that means nine out of ten wildfires can be prevented wow no kidding i'm a forest ranger we never kid sorry (laughs) that was a joke oh if you see someone in danger of starting a wildfire step in and make a difference because nine out of ten wildfires are caused by humans brought to you by smoky bear the u.s forest service your state forester and the ad council learn more at smokybear.com only you can prevent wildfires We missed you. Now it's more of the Wine Crush with Laura Lawson. Welcome back to the Crush. I'm Laura Lawson. We've got a fun show put together for you today. Of course, in a little bit, we're going to have uh, Bianca joining us from, and talking about her book Cork Dork. But in the meantime, I, I got off at the the end of that last segment discussing the fact that a small guy had been purchased by a large guy, and now all of a sudden it didn't matter what their sense of place was, how cool they were, that people were revolting against them. But that happens a lot in this industry, and I don't know whether people are paying attention to it or not. So part of what I want to talk about today is a little bit of sense of place, because I've gotten a lot of questions for list, from listeners about what different terminology means and how it works towards your favor or against your favor when you're looking about uh, place of origin. But Here's the thing. Right now, if we look in the legislature uh, for Texas, let's just take the whole state of Texas. There is a bill sitting there saying that uh, if you have made wine in Texas and you are going to put made in Texas on it, then 100% of the grapes that go into that wine should indeed be from Texas. Well, okay, the the outsiders, again, this goes back to outsiders looking in. We assume if the bottle says made in Texas, it's made in Texas. Well, yes, it is. But under law presently, 75% of those grapes are definitely grown in Texas. 25% of the grapes can be grown somewhere else. Hmm. Are the grapes grown in Texas? Yes. Is the wine bottled in Texas? Yes. Does it reside in Texas? Yes. Is it pretty much a Texas wine? Absolutely. But the winemaker, vintner, producer has the option of 25% of the grapes coming from someplace besides Texas. Could come from Arizona, could come from California, could come from New Mexico. And so that is actually a very huge debate going on right now, whether it has to be 100% made in Texas. Now, there are federal laws, there are different things out there that argue against this, and we're going to talk about place of origin, and then I'll get back to the concept of Texas. So next time you are wandering down the aisle, You are looking for a Sonoma Chardonnay, okay? Seems fairly straightforward. When you look in Sonoma Chardonnay, you see a ball that says Sonoma Chardonnay. 
you need to pay attention to the fine print. Now, granted, we've got labeling laws out there. Labeling laws dictate, like I said, 75% has to be grown in that region. But when you start looking at it, when you pick up that bottle of Laura Lawson Chardonnay, and it says produced and bottled by, or made and bottled by, that's telling you that only 75% of those grapes in that wine is from Sonoma County. It doesn't mean that it's bad. It just means that 25% of those grapes could come from Lake County. They could come from Chile's Valley. They could come from North Coast. They could come from Southern California. But produced and bottled by, made and bottled by, only 75% of that is necessarily from Sonoma County. And 75% of that's made at the winery. If you find a label that says produced by and made by, again, you're still looking at a 75% rule, saying, okay, 75% of that's from Sonoma, 75% of that's from California, 75% is made at that winery, 25% could be made elsewhere. So if we're looking at it from a perspective of what's going on at Texas, I'm not saying we have deceptive labels now. I'm just saying that there are certain things that are worded on labels that don't make it as clear as possible. If I pick up a bottle of wine from Texas that says produced and made by the rising star Kent Bernhardt winery in Texas, I'm going to try out the rising star. They're going to have determined what is the best blend, best grapes to put in that bottle. I'm going to put faith in my producer. Uh, to take this a little bit further, I'm going to give you two extremes for those of you who are actually interested in this sense of place argument. If you see a bottle of wine that says cellared and bottled by, that means it's going to have been made most likely at a crush facility. Cellared and bottled. Doesn't say anything about age, doesn't say anything about grown, doesn't say anything about harvest, doesn't even say anything about fermented. It just says cellared and bottled by. That means that somewhere along the lines there was a tank, they turned it on, they filled bottles. Doesn't mean it's a bad wine. There's a lot of great wines out there that say cellared and bottled by. Let's face facts, not everybody can have a $20 million winery. The opposite extreme of that is going to be crushed, fermented, finished, aged, and bottled. It's very, very specific on how you look at it. Crushed, fermented, finished, aged, bottled. They're going to put all the descriptors in there that they can. That was actually made at that winery in that county, and nothing came different from it. So it's kind of an estate bottled concept. But as with everything in this business, as with everything anywhere, it's all in the language. So pay attention, read your fine print, and go from there if you're worried about your sense of place. We're going to take a break here. When we return, we'll be joined by our guest, the one and only Court Dort. Hey, travelers. Do you want to save money on your next flight? Then pick up the phone and call. That's right, call, because the best prices are not online. They're with SmartFares. See, SmartFares has special deals with the airlines. When they have unsold seats, they use SmartFares to fill them. So you get airline tickets at ridiculously low prices. Our prices are too low to publish online. With the extra money you'll save, you can book another trip or treat yourself to dinner or shopping. So stop searching all of those travel sites to find the lowest price on your next flight. Let one of our SmartFares expert travel agents find ridiculously low prices for you. Call SmartFares today and get the best price on your next flight. Guaranteed. Also, save up to 50% off business and first class tickets. 800-989-0233. 800-989-0233. 800-989-0233. That's 800-989-0233. When I grow up, I want to be a new pair of blue jeans. When I grow up, I want to be a kid's first computer. When I grow up, I want to be a glass countertop in a new home. When I grow up, I want to be a kid's best birthday present. When I grow up, I want to be a football stadium. When I grow up, I want to be a warm place on a cold day. When I grow up, I want to be a fancy backsplash. I, I want to be a bike that races around the when country. When I grow up, 
I want to be a bench on a forest when I trail. Grow up, I want to be a rocking chair on when a I sunny up, porch. I want to be a skyscraper. I want to be. 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 When I grow up, I don't want to be a piece of garbage. And if you recycle me, I won't be. Give your garbage another life. Recycle. Learn how at IWantToBeRecycled.org. A public service advertisement brought to you by Keep America Beautiful and the Ad Council. Unexpected reactions to smart financial decisions brought to you by FeedThePig.org. Well, I finally did it. My student loan is totally paid off. I can't believe it. I can't believe it either. I paid more than the minimum each month, and soon enough, it was gone. So you're just giving up. Giving up on what? The life of luxury. Egyptian cotton, caviar Thursdays, designer everything. What are you talking about? Our plan. What happened to winning the lottery and mastering the art of the perfect mimosa? Hosting galas, wearing enough jewelry to require a bodyguard, vacationing in the French Riviera, and then buying it. I just thought maybe it was time to prepare for my future. You know, set some financial goals, make some smart investments, open a 401k. Financial goals? Investments? A 401k? You are horrifying right now. Listen, if winning the lottery were easy, everyone would do it. When it comes to financial stability, don't get left behind. Get tools and tips for saving at feedthepig.org. This message brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council on the next episode of Recipes for Disaster. So we've got our neighbor Paul coming over tonight for a barbecue, which is why I prepared a delicious lemon rosemary steak marinade from my special collection of old family recipes. To make sure the steaks are extra, extra, extra tender, I left them marinating out on the counter overnight, just like Nana used to. Maria may mean well, but without food safety, it never ends well. Always thaw or marinate foods in the refrigerator at 40 degrees Fahrenheit or below. Or you could make your friends and family really sick. Maria's neighbor Paul didn't think twice about the steak he ate until he was presenting his company's financial forecast to the board. That's when a sudden bout of food poisoning made it explicitly clear that profits weren't the only thing on the rise. Watch Recipes for Disaster at foodsafety.gov. You'll learn the right steps as Maria does everything wrong. Brought to you by the USDA, HHS, and the Ad Council. Here we are again. It's the Wine Crush with Laura Lawson. Welcome back to The Crush. I'm Laura Lawson. All right, as promised, I'm going to introduce the woman who, seriously, I can't decide we need to lock her up in an insane asylum or we need to worship her. It needs to go one way or the other. But right now, it's my pleasure to have Bianca Bosker, the author of Court Dork, join us. Bianca, welcome to The Wine Crush. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I cannot decide. I really can't. I've gone back and forth with this. I can't decide if you're my hero or I need to run. That is, uh, I think, a more polarized reaction, but maybe not one that I haven't heard before. I like that. Well, see, that's why we're going to have you on. We're actually going to get into this conversation because you have done something that I have I have heard from many, many people uh, in my years in the wine business that they decide, they're like, oh, my God, I just, I'd love to quit doing what I'm doing and just really immerse myself in the wine world and learn about wine and to really get involved in this. And sitting from my chair, I'm looking at like, yeah, they still don't pay enough for me to do that. And that's what I do for a living. So for our for our listeners, tell us exactly who Bianca is and from your mouth what the story was that got you into wine and to writing Court Dork. So as you uh, just alluded, if you haven't heard of the words Bianca Bosker and you aren't deciding whether to either worship me <laughs> or lock me up, um, I am uh, most notably and recently the author of um, the new New York Times bestselling book called Court Dork. Um, which is part memoir, part, if you're at a cocktail party, I might call it the kitchen confidential of wine. Um, But basically what happened is, I I just have to say, you know, I was not a wine connoisseur when I started. Um, There are people who, you know, spend their, maybe like you, you know, who spend their Friday nights agonizing over the choice between wines from Burgundy and Bordeaux. I would spend my weekends agonizing over the choice between wines from a bottle and a box. See, that, um, see, that's that's why we're perfect compatriots here, because not being a connoisseur, I'm just like, okay, well, we'll see how passionate we can get her. 
Well, yeah, and now I am one. I mean, I am, you know, some friends would call me a wine snob. I don't think that's unfair, but I tried not to be. Um, and basically what happened was uh, I discovered this world of cork dorks, and um, that's really the, not just the name of the book. It's a restaurant industry term for the most passionate and obsessive wine lovers among them. I just had and, to explain that term to Kent. I, it, it's something that came back from the 80s, and I, I can't believe I've never used it or never referenced it. So. <laughs> it's great. It's a good, I think it's a very uh, accurate descriptor, but it's, um, you know, I think we think of wine as being this beverage of pleasure, and these people turn it into a thing of god-awful pain. I mean, they lick rocks <laughs> to train their palates, they divorce their spouses to spend more time studying, they spend their precious days off at these competitions that are essentially like the Westminster dog show with booze. <laughs> and, yeah, I found this fascinating. You know, here was this subculture full of stories, you know, people that lived for flavor. And as someone who had never felt her spirit moved by a glass of fermented grape juice, I wanted to know why. What was the big deal about wine? And then secondly, I will say there was something more personal, which is at that point, you know, I had spent five years as the executive tech editor for a website. So I was living at a total opposite extreme. I mean, screens all day, every day, digital, virtual, you name it, soylent. And I found it, I just, I got hooked on this question of what was I missing? You know, these are people that can, you know, they live for their senses of taste and smell, whereas I think a lot of us really dismiss them. And I felt like, God, just made me realize how sterile my life was. And I wanted to know, could I train my senses? And, and it really took me from well, I don't just want to write about these court dorks. I want to see if I can become one of them. So they infected you. It's like a zombie plague. They infected you. I've seen it happen. <laughs> it's true. By the end, I mean, you know, I set out to train as a sommelier. I got a job as a cellar rat, start at the very bottom. And you're right. By the end, I ended up just obsessed by the things they obsess over. So I was. I was infected. I caught it. I caught what they would describe as the sickness. It is a sickness, without a doubt. But see, this is great because you see people, and, and you decide to do it. You've been in it. It took you a year and a half to immerse yourself in it. You can look at it. Now you look back at it with reality eyes. You're like, wow, I, I do get it. I understand the passion. But honestly, what people will put themselves through to be able to do that is staggering. It is. And I, I think that there's something um, – I do have the benefit, I will say, of having a very fresh memory of what it was like to be an outsider, to wonder about wine, to be asking stupid questions, to feel – kind of intimidated and, and stupid at times. And I think that that actually was a benefit for me. I mean, when I set on the journey that eventually became Cork Dork, I was really, you know, I came at it with a lot of curiosity, but also some skepticism. And so I think, you know, my journey was one that, yes, I was following, I was in these blind tasting groups with aspiring master sommeliers, working in Michelin-starred restaurants, you know, getting to know the kind of wine traditions and establishment but also bringing in, you know, I dissected brains. I had my own brain scanned by neuroscientists. I, you know, looked at the history of restaurants, talked to, you know, the inventor of tasting notes. And I think that there is that advantage, you know, I found of being able to kind of help these worlds talk to each other in a way that they should more, but also um, kind of remember what it was like in a very fresh way to have to build that wine foundation. And I think that's helpful. And you, you almost came into the wine world as a narc. <laughs> you came in with a great attitude and a great background, almost like a private investigator going, let's go ahead and, and, and we're, we're going to dissect this. We're going to see why people want to do this and get involved in it. All right, so you immersed yourself. You came in. You decided to go against the quartermaster sommeliers, get involved in their program. This is a question I'm sure you asked. I'm sure maybe you have addressed it. What was the thing that you found the first time you heard about, oh, we're going to lick rocks, we're going to taste this? What's the thing you found out that you looked around and were just absolutely horrified by? <laughs> well, I think that, I mean, tasting notes were um, required. Uh, I had a lot of skepticism around tasting notes. That's definitely one. And I will say, for, for what it's worth, I went and tracked down the history of this. Um, they haven't always been so crazy. Uh, and by the way, uh, they're not as traditional as you think. They really came in around the 70s. But I will say, I mean, the other thing that I found totally mind-boggling is that as part of my sommelier training, so to learn 
the art of service, and it really is an art. Um, you know, I came to think of psalms. They're really like the Olympic gymnasts or ballet dancers of the restaurant world. It looks deceptively easy, but they're doing something incredibly difficult, and the whole point is to make it look effortlessly elegant. But anyway, I ended up doing um, a trailer, a shadow on the floor at a Michelin star restaurant, and I was flabbergasted at the way that these places are judging you every bit as much as you are judging them. I mean, they keep notes on their guests, how much they spend, their preferences, their pet peeves. If you spend a whole lot of money, you could be a wine PX, which is personne extraordinaire. If you spend a whole heck of a lot of money, you could be a wine PPX, which is personne particulièrement extraordinaire. If you throw a temper tantrum, they might label you a HWC, which is handle with care, or what other people call, the restaurants call SOE, short for sense of entitlement. Um, <laughs> so there's this whole hidden language and element where it's, yeah, partly about the business, but it's also partly about delivering whatever it is emotionally and psychologically that people want when they come in for their meal. But see, I think that's part of it. I think, obviously, there's going to be snobbery on both sides. Whether you're sitting at the white tablecloth or you're serving the white tablecloth, you're going to be a snob if you're affording to eat there. And if you're going to be a sommelier, of course, here's the thing. I think people think sommeliers are coming to the table and being snobby and being condescending and that the notes are terrifying. But ultimately, people coming into a restaurant with a sommelier, they want to feel at home. They want to be greeted. And if they come in three times in a row and the sommelier can't remember what bottle they had, are they going to feel special? So it's a catch-20 when people start looking at the, the information that is collected, I think. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. It makes sense when you begin to, to think about it. And if you're regular, of course, you want that special treatment. Uh, you would hope that when I walk in, they know to have a bottle of Chardonnay or a bottle of Tattinger Cole. Hey, Bianca, we got to take a quick break right here. When we get back from the commercials, do want to get in more about your book, some other things that you learned, and what your next steps are going to be from here. Sounds good. I'll be here. Follow host Laura Lawson on Twitter at Wine Crush Radio. This is The Wine Crush. If you suffer from heartburn or other digestive-related disorders, then there is a new, safe, better, and natural alternative to better digestive wellness and heartburn relief. Praxid not only provides relief of heartburn, but Praxid takes a 360-degree approach to support better digestion, protect you from harmful bacteria, and also balance your stomach to improve digestive functions. We like to think of it as the multivitamin of digestive health. It's the only product to combine all natural ingredients known for the digestive health properties into a single patented product. Praxid also comes in easy-to-carry packs. Praxid relieves, restores, and maintains a healthy digestive system. Praxid is available here for only $39.95. Shipping and handling is free, and your money back is guaranteed. To take advantage of this special radio offer, call now, 1-800-829-5735. That's 1-800-829-5735. Again, 1-800-829-5735. Do you use the expensive blue or yellow pills to charge your sex life? Are you thinking about it? What if we could promise you the same results for less than $3 a pill? If you're paying $20 a pill for the other pills, you're getting taken to the cleaners. Call On Call Pharmacy right now and save as much as $700. 800-884-7919. On Call Pharmacy delivers the exact same results for less than $3. You'll save more than $16 a pill for the same results. And right now, radio callers will get 44 blue or yellow pills for $120 with free discreet shipping. You can save more than $700 off pharmacy prices. Call On Call Pharmacy now and take advantage of this special offer. 800-884-7919. Charge your sex life now and save a ton of money. Call now and get your 44 pills and save over $700 and qualify for free shipping. Stop overpaying and call right now. 800-884-7919. 800-884-7919. 800-884-7919. Welcome back to The Cat Show. Up next, we have Nico. Nico is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right. A group known especially for their sunspot sleeping, ball chasing, leg rubbing, couch purring, bed leaping, and of course, companionship. Wonderful. And what breed would you say Nico is? I'd have to go with a tabbyish Persian kind of mix. Tremendous cat. I'd also like to point out her coat's wonderful mix of colors. Is it black, gray, gray, black, brown? Somewhere in between. Indeed. You know, it's always special when we get to see a cat like this. Just look how she struts. It's like she owns the place. And how she's so incredibly cute in her indifference to commands. A strong-willed feline. Ah, 
and see how she curls up and cuddles her person. The pitch on her purring is simply perfect. Nice one. I know. Fantastic cat. Fantastic indeed. But really the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Nico is to meet one. Visit the shelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. Now it's back with more of the Wine Crush with Laura Lawson. Welcome back to the Crush. I'm Laura Lawson. We're in the middle of a really fascinating conversation with Miss Bianca Bosker. She is the author of Cork Dork, a book rapidly moving up the New York Times bestseller list. So, Bianca, you took your life as you knew it. Uh, you, you were working in IT, you were working in tech, and you decided that wine was this wonderful, elusive memory You went ahead, or idea. You decided that I'm going to throw my life away. I'm going to follow into the wine business. I'm going to see the underside of the wine business, uh, like those of us who have been in it for a long time. The wine business is a cruel and shallow money trench where pimps and thieves run free and weak men die like dogs. And you came out the other side still intact in one piece. So here's after looking back on all that, would you do it again? Oh, without a doubt. And I should say that I am mostly in one piece. I mean, <laughs> I have done some truly unspeakable things to my liver, I think, along the way. I mean, I went from, as you mentioned, you know, sitting down at 9 a.m. for my editorial meetings most weekday mornings to um, suddenly, you know, most weekdays I was, 10 a.m. found me in front of my first 6 to 12 glasses of wine. I was drunk most days by noon, desperately hungover by 2.30, begging for a nap around 4. And, you know, it was, um, yeah, I really went from one extreme to another, but I would absolutely do it over. And I will say that part of it is because of this new pleasure and beauty that I can appreciate in wine. I mean, I used to roll my eyes when some of my son mentors would talk about wines that could make them feel small the way that a painting or a piece of music could. But honestly, look, I mean, before I only ever got, you know, a little drunk out of a glass of wine, and now it's an experience that is emotional, it's intellectual, not just physical. And even more than that, what I learned in the wine world is really how to get in touch and savor these forgotten senses of taste and smell. So I think more than a lot of us realize, Plato and Aristotle they decided way back early on that taste and smell don't matter. They're the animalistic senses, and we're bad at them anyway. And that view has really, I think, infected science, philosophy, our everyday lives more than we realize. And for me, spending time with these psalms who rearrange their lives around flavor who live for it, who train themselves to savor it, taught me to value what I describe as sensefulness, which is this idea that it's by tuning into our senses that we can better learn to really make sense of the world. And there's just the skills that I learned at a glass of wine, I really apply to my everyday life all the time. I mean, it's definitely made riding the subway in New York a little bit more of a liability. Um, you know, being able to really pick out those notes of stale urine and um, day-old vomit is not always a perk, but there is this beauty and richness that exists all around us that I think a lot of us do neglect because we never really think about listening to our noses. It's exciting. You Certainly you have come out of it passionate. And I, I think this is something, you know, we, we've spent a lot of time, those of us in the wine business now, trying to make wine accessible, to make sure that people didn't feel intimidated, that didn't feel stupid, they could ask what questions they wanted to. And I think we've achieved it for the most part. I think wine is an everyday beverage. People are comfortable with it. But it's almost time, and hearing you talk makes me warm and fuzzy, for the pendulum to start swinging the other way again. Because we have this world right now with our iPhones. We have this world of instant gratification. We have this world where our iPhones will tell us that Jordan Chardonnay is one of the best ones on the planet. Best ones, okay, buy it, drink it. In that moment, though, but someone told you it was great, so you're just consuming it. Do we take the time? to turn the world from black and white into color by actually putting our nose, putting our tongue against it, and tasting and experience it, I don't think we're doing that anymore. So the idea that you have turned yourself from your IT background to the wine background, it excites me and it gives me hope for this next generation coming through. It's there, it's discoverable, and I'm glad to hear people finding it. 
Absolutely. Well, I think so, too. And, look, you don't have to be born a bloodhound. Like, I think a lot of people feel like, well, just because I can't smell that black pepper or black olive, you know, in a glass of wine, that I never will. Well, you know what? First of all, new research suggests that we are much better smellers than we give ourselves credit for, and you can train it. I mean, there is a way in which the sense of smell is like a muscle. Um, and the thing is, most of us never take the time or effort to actually do so. I think it's uh, it speaks to this paradox, right? We are obsessed with food. We spend all this time and money on finding food that tastes better, but we never take that step of really teaching ourselves to taste well. And I think that, you know, a lot of, for me, learning about having, again, dissected brains, spoken with sensory scientists, gone through studies as a lab rat myself, I think the real first step that a lot of us can take is really has to do more with ourselves and just smelling everything around, just putting names on it, words on it, describing it. Um, and that can happen even before you get to a glass of wine. Well, see, that's the key right there. And this is one of these things that I've been on this soapbox probably for the last 18 months. I, 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 yes, you do need to train yourself. But if you stopped everybody right now and asked them what ketchup smelled like, they'd know. I can't think of a person that doesn't know what ketchup smells like. But here's the thing. You start asking them what pepper smells like, and someone may think black pepper. Someone might think white pepper. Someone may think a chili pepper. I think what we need to do, and you're on the cusp, you're in a position where you can almost lead this charge, is to come up with a language for our sense of sensory, a language that we can speak commonly so that people aren't scared or don't feel stupid. Uh, I use this example all the time. I was born and raised in the South. Confederate jasmine is what I know. My friends in California have jasmine out there, but it's yellow. They smell different. They look different. They're totally different. And the first time we ever realized this is because we got in a knockdown, drag-out argument over a glass of Viognier <laughs> saying it smelled like jasmine. And I said, you're absolutely crazy. It does not. So I think until we find a way to bridge that gap, people won't be comfortable enough to embrace it exactly like you have. Yeah, though I think that there's the beginnings of that language. I mean, I don't know if you know the work of Anne Noble, but she Oh, yes. Done, yeah, well, she, you know, her tasting note, like, her, her sorry, her tasting wheel, um, which really was, there was this whole kind of movement in the 70s. Like, when we look at the history of tasting notes, right? There was a long time where people were describing wines in terms of people. It could be masculine, it could be feminine, it could be honest, it could be duplicitous. And there was this movement really led by Anne and these scientists to say, look, let's work with some concrete things that we all know. Let's get our wine wheel together, let's get our descriptors, let's put it out there. Right. So it's great to see that's coming back around. I'm glad to see it's making a resurgence and I'm glad to see it's something that they're back to teaching when you're working with the sommeliers. Well, well they're not. But they should be. They should be. <laughs> Bianca, we are coming to a close here. Obviously, we want everyone to go out, read your book, to get the insider experience. Do you have a website where you would love for our listeners to come visit and learn more about who you are and what you're doing? That would be great, BiancaVosker.com. And if you happen to be in Vermont this weekend, come say hi. I'll be reading in Manchester and then at the 92nd Street Y in New York this coming Thursday, the 24th. Absolutely perfect. Well, I am certainly looking forward to keeping an eye on you and seeing what comes next. Let's see what your passion can turn into here in the wine world. Thank you. Well, I hope you won't lock me up after it's all. I won't. I don't. Hey, I, I have decided that you are as rationally unsane as the rest of us, and you're going to fit in beautifully. Thanks, and thanks for having me. We're going to take a break on the crash. When we return, we're going to wrap up today's show and plan ahead to what great things we have coming down the pipe. Need a wine recommendation for a party? Want Laura to address something on the show? Email her at lauralawson at winecrush.com. An adult elephant can weigh up to six tons. The average person, 150 pounds. Ever heard of carfentanil? It's a large wild animal tranquilizer. Illegal drug dealers lace heroin with it. It can kill the average human. If you or a loved one is addicted to opiates, even pain pills, don't wait until it's too late. Call the Detox and Treatment Helpline now. We care. Many of us have been where you are. We'll take you or a loved one away from the drug environment to a place you can clean out safely. Plus, we'll work with your insurance company to make sure you get the treatment you need. And with a Family Medical Leave Act, you're allowed by law to get away for help without telling your employer why. Call now to save a life. 800-915-9734. 800-915-9734. That's 800-915-9734. The IRS is the most feared agency in the world. 
You've heard ads from other companies offering to help taxpayers only if they owe over $10,000. Here at Platinum Tax Defenders, we're A-plus rated with the Better Business Bureau, and we're proud to be one of the only tax firms in the country who understands that people who owe less than $10,000 need help just as badly. The IRS doesn't care how much money you owe. They'll still garnish your wages and even seize your assets. So whether you owe just a few thousand dollars or hundreds of thousands, call now for your free tax consultation. If you qualify, we may even be able to reduce your tax debt down to a small fraction of what you owe. So don't wait until the IRS seizes your property and garnishes your wages. Call 800-856-1330 and get your tax problem resolved once and for all. That number again is 800-856-1330. 800-856-1330. As I went through school, one giant question loomed over me. What did I want to be? But in order to know what I wanted to be, I had to first decide what I wanted to make. I wanted to make more. So I became a teacher. Now I make learning a privilege not a chore and frustration a tool not an obstacle i make working hard seem easy and giving up impossible i make an old subject feel like a fresh thought and unconventional methods common i make material things less important and little things like patience and kindness count i make weekdays more exciting than weekends and classrooms feel like anything but i make things different which is all I ever hoped for. I'm a teacher. I make more. Find out how you can make more at teach.org. Make more. Teach. Brought to you by Teach and the Ad Council. We're back with more Wine Crush with Laura Lawson. I'm Laura Lawson. This is The Wine Crush. That charming young lady was Bianca Bosker. She is the author of Cork Dork, New York Times bestseller, and something I really encourage those of you who are on the cusp of thinking about getting into the wine world, the wine business, or immersing yourself in it, I suggest you read the book. It gives great insight. Man, one thing I wanted to ask her, though, you know, you, you quit your job, you walk away from things, and uh, you decide to get involved in taking your sommelier exams. These are not cheap things to go ahead and invest in. So uh, it's always fascinating. Congratulations on having a book. Now she can probably pay for what she had already gone through for the last year and a half. But I like the idea of her excitement. I like the idea of the passion. So you find someone like that. You find someone who can put that energy into it and that commitment into it. And I know now, after hearing moments like that and knowing the enthusiasm is out there, that whether it's sense of place, whether it's your sense of moment, uh, whether it's the soap in the glass or not soap in the glass, that we aren't going to get so lackadaisical that we don't care anymore. That there is going to be a generation, there will be a movement where we get back on top and what's in the wine and what's around the wine matters just as much as who you're with. As always here in The Crush, reminding you to drink responsibly, to sip socially, to drink what you like, not what you're told, but most importantly, in vino veritas, in wine, there's truth. I'm Laura Lawson, and I'll talk with you next week.